How about we turn to Isaiah 45? Man, has it been a long time since we've been in the text? Where have you people been? Slacking. Isaiah 45. Yeah. So who put this bench up here? I know it was somebody at Michael's memorial. Oh. Well, how did he sit here behind the pulpit? Okay. I would just be a talking head. So, All right. Well, uh, for the context of where we're at, we're still in this uh, rather large prophetic section uh, that is discussing God's future judgment of Israel, uh, Judah specifically, for sins of idolatry, sins of immorality. She's rejected the covenant of God and has gone after the ways of the surrounding idolatrous nations. But embedded in the covenant, as we've said many times, is God's promise uh, to judge Israel for her sins. So God uh, always keeps covenant, and so he will ensure that Judah is judged for her sins in accord with the covenant. If you, if you belong to God, if you're in covenant with him, uh, and you stray as a good, loving father, he will keep covenant with you, which calls for um, a spanking, exactly. Uh, as Hebrews makes very clear, if you belong to him and you stray, he comes after you. And uh, if you don't turn quickly and fully, uh, then he, he will be more thorough. He gets the paddle out. You have some experience with this, I can tell. <laughs> I was speaking theologically, theoretically, but you sound like you have something to share. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Amen. He is faithful. Uh, the judgment, of course, that God has prescribed uh, and promised back in the law uh, a long time before now was exile to a foreign nation. We know that's Babylon, and that's spoken of in Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jer Jeremiah specifically says it'll be for 70 years, and so God, through the prophet Isaiah, he doesn't provide specific dates but he provides specific names, which is amazing. Already in chapter 44, God has named Cyrus, calling him my shepherd, who will perform all my pleasure. And uh, it's amazing. This prophecy was given in the 8th century B.C., uh, but it wasn't until the first half of the 6th century B.C. that Cyrus would give the edict for the Jews to return to Judah to rebuild their capital city and lay the foundations for the temple. The, t the prophecy in Isaiah 44 reads this way. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, that is for my people, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And then when we get to chapter 45, things become a little more specific. So why don't we read the text and uh, we'll see what it has for us. If you would like to stand, I invite you to do that. Uh, it's 25 verses. I'm not a speed reader, so if you have to sit, uh, go ahead. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and make the crooked places straight. 
I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the pot shards strive with the pot shards of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who formed it, who are, uh, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his paths. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God who hides yourself. O God of Israel, the savior, they shall be ashamed and also disgraced all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord. With an everlasting salvation, you shall, be, you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. To him, men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified 
and show glory. Father, we thank you. It's quite the chapter. I pray that you would reveal it to us, you teach us from it. Lord, that you would encourage us by the reality that you, you truly know the end from the beginning. And uh, that doesn't just include the history of Israel and where you will bring them, but it, for every individual that's in the world, Lord. And as we have entered into covenant with you, our lives are in your hands and, and you will orchestrate your ultimate good end for us. For that, we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Well, how many guys have a different translation than me, bunch of you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I discovered that the translators had a few challenges in here, and we'll talk about at least two of them. Um, I'm thankful that I'm not a translator, uh, because your work goes out to all the world to scrutinize. And um, I don't know that I want to be scrutinized that much. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's... Look through here again. So, thus says the Lord to his anointed, literally, Mashiach, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, that is Yahweh, who call you by your name and the God of Israel, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and to Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there's none besides me. I am the Lord, and there's no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So as we showed in chapter 44, God calls Cyrus his shepherd, but here he calls him his anointed. That is Messiah, he calls him his Messiah. Now in the Old Testament, uh, there are three uh, sorts of people that were anointed. You had prophets, priests, and kings. They're all anointed. They're all called uh, a Messiah, if you will. Uh, but I think that in our minds, we think that God will only anoint a Hebrew king, right? But here he anoints, or will rather anoint, uh, in the future from when this was given, uh, a pagan king. And so this anointing refers to you know, God himself selecting an individual for a very particular role that 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 come, and coming with it is a, a specific task or mission. Now, uniquely, Jesus was, we would say, the anointed of God, right? The anointed of God, selected by God, and appointed for a very specific task. Well, he was anointed as the prophet of prophets. He's, he's the one who spoke through all of the other prophets, right? Please say amen. Okay, he's the one that spoke through all of the other prophets, all of them. Also, he's our great high priest, and as the author of Hebrews says, he never dies, but ever and always lives to make intercession for his people. And he also anointed as the king of kings, whose kingdom and dominion is an everlasting dominion. So, 
as the anointed of God, he's eternal in every way. And so as prophet spokesman of God, he is that for the rest of eternity, okay? As our great high priest, he will always stand before God on our behalf. He ever lives. And as the king of kings, he will always and forever reign. Very unique uh, Messiah anointed in the scriptures. But Cyrus, uh, this Persian man who is yet to even be born, uh, would be anointed just to be king for a specific reason, for a specific people, okay? In chapter 44, God appointed him to let the Jews go. So as soon as he rises to power in Babylon, uh, he will sign a decree. Um, You can look at his uh, general decree in the, the Cyrus Cylinder. Have you guys have heard of that? A copy of it is at the UN because many people interpret it as this um, document, uh, one of the first documents of human rights, okay? This, this edict of tolerance toward peoples and their autonomy and their religion. Now, scholars debate that that is what the cylinder actually does, but it, regardless of what that particular cylinder communicates, uh, what kind of a document it was, um, when Cyrus came to power, He basically told all the peoples, not just the Jews, but all the peoples that were in captivity, go home. Oh, and by the way, uh, make sure that you take your idols with you out of the temple of Babylon and take them with you. Take them back to the temples to which they belong. But the Jews didn't have any idols in the temple of God. They had some furnishings, some, some articles, okay? And as you know the story... Uh, someone in Babylon named Belshazzar was partying with some of those furnishings. Do you remember the story? And so as he's, uh, and he was the king of Babylon at that time, or kind of a, a sort of king. And during this party where they're getting drunk and everything else, what happens? That's right. Mene, mene, tekel, you farson. You've been weighed in the balances found wanting. And tonight your life will be required of you. But he didn't know what it meant, and he was troubled. The King James says that his knees smote one into another. I love that. That's, that means you're scared, right? And so his mother says, oh, you need Daniel here, because all the other magicians, Chaldeans, sorcerers, they couldn't interpret it. So Daniel comes in, and I could, you could just imagine the scene when he comes into this hall and sees the things from the temple of God and they're desecrating them and he interprets it and then he says, and by the way, tonight you're going to die. Guess who was coming under the walls of Babylon in the riverbed? The Persians. That's right. On the cylinder of Cyrus, he boasts that he took the city of Babylon without violence and he did. And it took days for people inside of Babylon to realize that they were conquered. So everybody was in in the middle of festivities. The river was diverted. The armies came under the wall in the riverbed, and without slaughtering the armies of Babylon, they took the city. Yeah, But they did kill Belshazzar, just as God promised. Very interesting. So God raised up this Cyrus, to let the people go, 
whoever they were, and he said that the Jews could rebuild the city, the foundation, and, and the foundation of the temple. But that wasn't the end of it. Uh, Cyrus had only kind of got this whole thing into motion. Latter kings that succeeded him, they issued other kings that uh, allowed further rebuilding of Israel, uh, of Judah specifically, like the city wall. Now, when the emperor allows a foreign country to rebuild its walls, that's significant because that's how a city would defend itself from them. But he allowed the walls to be built and the completion of the temple. So we have Darius I, who came along in 518 BC. That's recorded in Ezra chapter 6, verse 1 through 12. He allowed further building. Artaxerxes I in uh, 458 BC, recorded in Ezra 7, 11 through 26. And then again, which is a more famous date, is 44 BC in Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 8. In fact, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, and somebody had visited from Jerusalem and said, it's a mess. And so Nehemiah, because the king noticed that his countenance had fallen, and he said, and that's not good. If the countenance of your cupbearer is fallen, you want to know what's up, right? So he says, Nehemiah, what's up? And then he shares with him, and then he, he says, oh, king, please let me go back and let me get to the bottom of all this. And so the king uh, gives him letters, authority to go back with an entourage and with money to fund it. It's crazy. All because of the sovereignty of God and his providence. All of these men gave decrees or permission to the Jews to continue building. It's great stuff. So that's what Isaiah 44, 28 predicted, as well as Cyrus's name. Here in chapter 45, God has anointed Cyrus, he says, also to subdue kingdoms, especially Babylon, uh, which he did on October 12, 539 BC, which then would lead to, so the very purpose that I've raised you up is to conquer Babylon, to, to you know, dismantle that regime so that the Jews can be released, so they can repatriate Judah and then start rebuilding. And verse 1 goes on to say, Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to accomplish these things, that's interesting, whose right hand I have held. He's not even born yet. So we've talked about the, you know, the prophetic perfect tense, the prophetic present tense, and now we're talking about the prophetic past tense. That's very interesting. God is looking back on what has not yet happened in human history. He truly stands completely outside of time. And he uses this interesting language. Yeah. So God doesn't just know what will happen in advance. But through his omniscience, he sees things from all eternity. He can look forward to what will happen in human history. And he can look back at something that hasn't yet happened from our perspective. He know, truly knows the end from the beginning. And as we've gone through this large section of prophecy, that proves his deity. And remember all the, the taunting and the challenging of the idols where he says, go ahead and, and give it a try. You know, tell us the future. And there's this complete silence. So in these verses, the, the purpose for anointing Cyrus to subdue nations, verse 1, to conquer kings, verse 1. But God also intended to reveal himself to Cyrus, verse 3. A mercy is granted to Cyrus. Now, according 
So the question is, uh, how would Cyrus come to know any of this? Well, Josephus says that Daniel, who, remember, was there the night that Babylon was conquered, that Daniel shared with him the book of Isaiah. And many scholars say there is no reason to object to that. Because remember, he still rises to the top. And in Daniel chapter 9, he's, he's looking at Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years. So he has the scriptures in his possession. And for the sake of his people, why wouldn't he show Cyrus uh, Isaiah's prophecy and Jeremiah's prophecy and whatever? It's crazy. So he keeps saying, there is no other God but me. He says it tons of times in this chapter. And then he says, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. So it's interesting that, you know, this moral agenda that God has for Israel, uh, the people that he's fashioned, he's raised up for his purposes. It's, it's about righteousness. So as the Proverbs say, riches profit not on the day of judgment, but righteousness. That's Proverbs eleven four. This whole exile thing, the whole uh, bringing them into judgment and then bringing them back has everything to do with restoring them to a right relationship with God. It's an absolute moral agenda, bringing his people into conformity to his image, having them love him and obey him. That's the agenda. And as he's going to bring up in a little bit, he will use whatever means are at his disposal that's, that, that is, you know, uh, agreeable to his nature to accomplish those ends. Even if they don't like it, even if you don't like it. As we said at the beginning, if you're in covenant with him, he will keep covenant with you. He says, woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the pot shards strive with the pot shards of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, has he no hands? Okay, so woe to him who strives with his maker. The next five verses uh, anticipates a problem that Israel will have with God's methods. Hmm. Sounds like we're a lot like Israel, having problems with God's methods. Before we look at this, I want to bring your attention to the second sentence in the passage. As I mentioned, there's some places that are not easily translated, and um, there's some variations out there. The New King James implies that people, that is, pot shards in the illustrations, should, should strive with other people, but not with their creator. Most other translations say something like this, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but pot shards among the pot shards on the ground. Uh, which is correct, I don't know. Uh, but it's true, if we are going to take up a quarrel, it's better to quarrel with another human being than it is to quarrel with God. Amen? And it's true that we're just creations among other creations. And we have no business quarreling uh, with our creator. Amen? And the interesting thing about this statement here is we are pot shards. Uh, Adam was brought forth from what? Specifically red dirt. That's clayish soil. And add a little fire to it and you got, you got pot shards. Yeah. So we're just living, breathing pot shards. And uh, so dirt should not argue with its creator. Amen? Yeah. The problem isn't with his work in creation. The problem lies with 
what we have done as his creatures. So woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. Okay, so another uh, difficult translation here. The rendering of the New King James and the NASB are pretty difficult to just kind of follow. The ESV, the NIV are the clearest and they fit best with the previous two verses about striving with our maker. The NIV reads this way. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Are you, are you questioning me about how I do things? Have we reversed roles? Am I, am I confused about this? Yeah, God is not simply talking about what will happen in Israel's future as if his foreknowledge is passive. No, he's addressing how he is going to bring about Israel's future. He will orchestrate Israel's future by way of Cyrus. That's what this discussion is about. And God is saying to them, you have no right to object or complain about how I want to do this. Remember, he uses whatever means at his disposal Cyrus would be at his disposal in the context of judging his people. And he's going to use this pagan king for his own purposes, for the sake of his people, and they're not going to like it. God says, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I love that, that he commands the stars. I have raised him up, Cyrus, in righteousness. And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. So the, the anticipated quarrel comes from God's people who he says that you have no right to strive with me. And the quarrel is over God's anointed, over the man that he's chosen to deliver them. So understand the Jews historically have over time, have become more and more racist. You remember the story of Jonah, right? That's way prior to Isaiah. Not way prior, but prior to Isaiah. Maybe, yeah, prior. Did he like Assyrians? He wanted them all wiped out, okay? Imagine if God had raised up an Assyrian king to deliver Jonah. Jonah would have been like, throw me back in the whale, okay? Yeah. The Jews are not going to appreciate that God has used a pagan ruler to be their deliverer. But God says, I'm the creator. I have the divine prerogative to do this for my own purposes. And he says, it is in righteousness. You may not be able to see it, but it's in righteousness that I've raised up Cyrus for this very thing. And this will be the right thing to do. So disagreeing with God over his choice of methodology his course of action for our lives. Have you been there before with him? You guys, do you all agree with the way God has dealt with you? Yeah. In hindsight, yeah. You know, the history as we look through the scriptures, and I think even the history of just godly people that we've uh, admired so much throughout the history of the church, that in their history, we've seen a history of pain, suffering, and loss. Have we not? The people that we respect the most, the people that we just look up to. We, we admire them, but then when we hit reverse on their life, we see a life of pain. We see a life of suffering. We see all that they endured. 
We love the results. And I think from the scriptures, from church history, we discover that that seems to be the method of sanctification. It seems to be. Not because God is cruel, but there, apparently there's something about us, our nature and disposition that calls for it. You know, we want the good results, but we often despise his methods. Um, I may regret sharing this story. Isaac, can I share a story about you? Thank you. It's perfect. When we first moved here, Isaac was six months old. That was when he was cute. This little brown baby. And we would reluctantly send him away, as first-time parents are, to the nursery. And after a couple weeks, uh, one of the nursery workers, and they're not here, but they came to me and they said, you know, when, when I change Isaac, he's really good. Like I lay him down on the changing table and he just lays there. I mean, he doesn't move. All the other kids are like, like going crazy on the changing table. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, it took a lot of training. And she says, well, what did you do? Oh, man, I should not have shared. She liked the results, but she didn't like how I got there. But it wasn't that, like, Isaac laid there and cried. He would, so I have this picture of Isaac. I put him down on the changing table, and this is what he would classically do. <laughs> As a little baby, he would just put his hands behind his head, and he would just wait patiently for us to be done, you know? And, uh, but there was some crying before we got there. But then it was just, he was a blessing to other people, right? To the nursery workers, to my mom, to anybody that watched him. And I didn't abuse my son. He can't even remember. <laughs> you guys, if God were passive, if he was passive in our lives, if he was hands off, or if he did things our way, it would just lead to our ruin. We would self-destruct so fast. The proverb says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it far from him. Okay. Right, Isaac? Okay. All right. His grace, as the scriptures promise, brings us to the best possible ends. And of course, the struggle that we all have is we only see what's right in front of us. We see the here and now, but as he's been talking about through all of this, he sees the very end from the very beginning. He sees the final product, which according to Paul, that product that he sees is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece because he has Christ as the prototype and he has us, this gnarly looking piece of something, and he's busy shaping it and conforming it to the masterpiece, which is Christ. And it's a painful process at times. He sees a masterpiece. We are uh, Paul says we're his workmanship. He's the author and he's the finisher. Amen? And we love how poetic and beautiful that sounds, but on the ground, it's not so lovely at times, right? But the fact is, as we read the scriptures, as we see the life of people in the scriptures, as we know the testimony of so many others, what we need to do is just trust him at all times. But especially when things are shaky, when things are painful when things look impossible. We have to understand he has the outcome in his hands and we need to be faithful and he will see us to his intended end. You know, we always say, well, God is in control. Well, we typically say that when others are going through a mess and that house, somehow that's to comfort them, right? God is in control. And, and it is if somebody is, it understands that theologically that God has set boundaries around you, right? 
and he won't let you go outside those. But it's like a gauntlet on the inside of those boundaries as you go through it. Yeah, he's controlling things. He's, he's got it managed, but it, it doesn't feel managed. But all of the scriptures reveal that he is bringing everything to his intended end. We will end up right where he intends us to end up. I have full confidence in him. As Jude says, to him who is able to make us stand, scriptures say he will present us faultless before his throne. Does it say maybe? It doesn't. It says that he will. So we should trust him. Let's move on. Thus says the Lord. So we're transitioning into something else. The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, not to Cyrus. We've changed gears. And they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains. And they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Now, that promise to Israel is, is, is lovely. You shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation, eternal salvation. That's the phrase in the book of Hebrews to the church. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever at that time. But leading up to that, there's going to be a lot of shame. There's going to be a lot of struggles and a lot of pain. So the transition from verse 13 to verse 14, it's abrupt, but certainly not uncommon in Isaiah's literature. Verse 17 here indicates that we're looking forward not to the relatively near future when Cyrus releases the Jews from Babylon, but the distant future when Israel enjoys everlasting salvation. So we've changed gears here, haven't we? To a time where God will secure this reality for them. At that time, verse 14, the Gentile nations will come and they'll serve Israel. What is mentioned in verse 14 about Egypt, Cush, and the Sabians has never happened in past history. And therefore, where must it lie further into the future? Okay. Now, Isaiah chapter 60 is dedicated to this whole discussion of nations in the future flocking to Israel to serve Israel and to worship Yahweh, uh, just as Zechariah 14 talks about. Let me read uh, Zechariah 14, 16 through 19 to you. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to the feast or to keep the feast of tabernacles. That is an interesting prophecy. There has never been a time in history 
when Gentile nations flocked to Israel to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, the memorial about the wilderness wanderings. There's never been a time in history when God has punished Gentile nations for not celebrating tabernacles. And more importantly, there has never been a time when the people of the Gentile world have recognized the God of Israel by coming to Jerusalem. When will that happen? Well, we can say that it's all figurative language, but that certainly does not fit with Zechariah. Everything around it is fulfilled literally in history. This all looks forward to the earthly reign of Messiah. And I do not mean Cyrus. Amen. The earthly reign of Christ. That's when this will happen. And it's described in a, a number of other places. Okay? So that seems to be the general context of where we are, at least in that what we might call an age within the ages of earth history. He goes on, he says, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So just to be clear speaking, he says, This is Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, the only God. So I want that to be clear. And then embedded in the passage is this interesting statement. He says, who formed it to be inhabited. The Lord formed the earth to be inhabited. In order to do that, he had to make it inhabitable. How many of you guys are familiar with the anthropic principle? Mike, raise your hand. You know what it is. Yes, you do. Anthropic means that which pertains to man. We say anthropology. Anthropos in Greek means man. And principle here means law. So the laws that govern our universe. So the anthropic principle explores the laws of nature that make earth inhabitable for man, okay, that make it uh, life possible here. Uh, we've, we, con we continue to discover uh, with our new telescopes that Earth is the only place that has life. I know that there's a few um, astronomers and the rest. They're very hopeful, okay? Uh, but there's nothing out there. Uh, life isn't possible out there. Um, Earth, though, has been finely tuned. It's been furnished for life, whereas the other planets are hostile toward it. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Have you guys seen the privileged planet, one person? We need to show it here uh, on a night. It's a great video. Uh, it was done by ICR, uh, the Institute for Creation Research, and a few other um, creation science groups. Um, I just grabbed a couple here. Uh, some of them are way beyond me that I've seen, like mathematical equations that go on for pages. So we will be doing none of that right now, okay? So, for example, Earth's atmosphere, if there were too much of just one of the many gases which make up our atmosphere, our planet would suffer a runaway greenhouse effect. On the other hand, if there was not enough of these gases, life on this planet would be devastated by cosmic radiation. It's perfectly balanced. Earth's reflectivity, or albedo, that's the total amount of light reflected off the planet versus the total amount that is absorbed. If Earth's albedo, if that's how you say it, were much greater than it is now, we would experience runaway freezing. If it were much less than it is, we would experience a runaway greenhouse effect. Earth's magnetic field, if it were much weaker, our planet would be devastated by cosmic radiation. 
If it were much stronger, we would be devastated by severe electromagnetic storms. There's tons of these. They just go on and on and on and on. Uh, without our moon and its distance from us and its size, our oceans, depending on its size and location, um, we would flood twice a day. Okay? Uh, or the other way, the, 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 there would be no tide and the oceans would die. And then we would probably die. Okay? All kinds of these. The color of the sun, if the sun were much redder on the one hand or bluer on the other, photosynthesis would be imp impeded. We kind of need photosynthesis here, don't we? Yeah. So anyway, there's all of these principles uh, there that make life here inhabitable. And uh, there's a lot of really cool things. All of it points to an intelligent, intentional designer. Amen? There's more. God says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So not only did God create the earth to be inhabited by us, he created us to know him. He's knowable, okay? We were created to be in relationship with our creator. And thankfully, our creator is not the devil, but the God of righteousness. You see, if, if the creator was nothing but a villain, the earth could have, could have been inhabitable, but our existence would have been intolerable, right? Yeah, but the God of creation is the God of righteousness. He says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save them. Now, at this point in the prophecy, it becomes very difficult to discern who God is speaking to. Is God speaking to the heathen about heathens? Uh, is God speaking to Israel about the heathens? Okay, without any real confidence. Okay, I'm, I'm going to interpret the following as though God is speaking about the heathen world as opposed to Israel. Now, at some point in history, Gentiles apparently will escape the Gentile world, having come to faith in the God of the Bible, presumably, because God has revealed to them the folly of idolatry. So the question is, when will this happen? Now, because verse 17 has transported us to events pertaining to the end times, I think we should maintain the context and interpret this event as occurring toward the end of the age. And I'm guessing just probably just before or into the beginning of the tribulation. And perhaps it's during the upheaval of the nations that's mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, where God clearly, uh, directly intervenes on Israel's behalf. And there's going to be Gentile survivors, refugees at that time, perhaps, that come to faith in the God of Israel. Now, I'm supposing, I just want to make that clear, I do not know how to exegete this text. Is that fair enough? If you know, please tell me, okay? Whenever this happens, though, idolaters will come to their senses about idolatry. And he says, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Now again, we're seeing this repetition of this challenge that goes out to the pagan world and their, and their idols. Okay? God challenges the heathen. Bring your idols together and prove to us that they're actually gods. 
And again, the one sure way to do that is to have them tell us the things that are to come. Tell us the end from the beginning. Prove yourself. As he says, I'm the only one that does this. Nobody comes forward but me, and therefore, I am the only God. So God declares to the heathen, look to me. Don't look to your idols. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. I've sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So this is a matter of what is right, that all should, should bow before their creator and declaring with fidelity to him with an oath in order to be saved. Does part of that text look familiar to you? Where is it? Who quotes it? Come on, Bible scholars. Philippians. That's right, Philippians. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has also exalted him, that's Christ, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those in earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah is looking forward, of course, to this time. But did you see the language there? Back in verse 23, Yahweh is speaking, and he says that to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. But in Philippians, who are people bowing and confessing to? To Christ. Who is Christ then? Don't be afraid to say it. He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh. So who's speaking in Isaiah 45? Christ. Yahweh. Same person. Okay? Same person. I love it. Remember we said that he was, Jesus was anointed as the prophet of prophets who speaks through all the other prophets. That's Yahweh. That's Christ. Yeah. By love in Philippians, the implication here is that um, when he says all... He doesn't just mean mankind, angelic kind as well. We know that in Hebrews chapter 1 that all the angels worship him, but see all of the dark angels and Satan himself also will take a knee and they will confess that Christ is Lord before the Father tosses them into um, Gehenna. They ain't going there until they make the confession and bow the knee or bow the knee and make the confession. Don't you like that? I just pray that we all get to stand around and watch it. The enemy of our souls go down to his knees and say, it's true. Jesus Christ is Lord. You're right. Now out of here. <laughs> true. God, be gone. Away with you. Yeah. Those who are saved do it now of their own free will. But those who reject Christ in this life, they will do it later contrary to their will. And as our text in Isaiah 45.23 says, God will not relent on this. He's not, he will never revoke this. It is a matter of righteousness. None will stand in the presence of Christ. He's worthy to be worshipped. Verse 24, he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. That's the, this pagan that has converted. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. So those who freely, willingly bow the knee... Uh, and swear the oath will have righteousness and strength in him. But those who were incensed against him, they will be ashamed, and, and they will be ashamed forever. Everlasting contempt, scriptures say. And then verse 25, in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That is, they will boast in what God has done for them. Now, this important word here, justified, uh, 
declared righteous. It doesn't say here that they will become righteous people, but they will be legally declared righteous in spite of themselves. It's a great, great word. We're going to get there later more as we go, especially as soon as we get to Isaiah 53. It's the same truth for us as we saw of Abraham in um, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was attributed or accounted to him for righteousness. It was an imputed righteousness, not a becoming righteous. Okay? It's, a, it's a way that God views the believer. It's not how the believer is. Amen? And then it's through that painful process of sanctification that we become more and more like the one who declared us to be righteous. I love it. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I went 30 seconds over. Man, I know. I'm trying to get better. Thank you. Well, Father, of course, it's addressed in the opposite order in the text. We, through faith, are considered by you to be righteous because the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. It's, it's the crown jewel of our faith. And Lord, we're so grateful for it. And then subsequent to that is this process, Lord, and you get to decide how it is that you bring us from here to the masterpiece. And Lord, I pray that we would not complain against you when you decide the method, the means by which you will do your perfect work. Lord, help us to see all conflict in our lives, all pain, all struggle, and Lord, even good things, of course, but help us to see them for what they are. They're things orchestrated by you to bring us to this place where we glorify you more and more and more until you look at what you've done and you're satisfied. Lord, it, help us to look forward to the final product. Um, help us to endure the shame, the pain, and, um, but Lord, help us to also recognize and enjoy the fruit as we walk in fellowship with you. And Lord, as you do that, don't just make us useful for your glory, but make us useful to other people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.